just talking to a couple people um, this last week, I was reminded again that um, this time of the year, the season, could be tough for some. Um, it could be a time uh, of loneliness and, and uh, time where some of the hurts and so on and so forth, uh, particularly as related to our families, kind of come up. And so I just wanted to uh, remind all of us again, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, to, to be mindful of those around us, you know, Amen. to keep our eyes open, uh, particularly when we come to church or gather in small groups, uh, and to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the ways that he might lead us as we, as we look around, okay? So, um, and, and, and we do this every Sunday, and I know that I haven't reminded us in a while, but, you know, I just want to really encourage those of you that need prayer for anything, after the service, uh, this space right here, right around the cross, is where we allow folks to come and receive prayer as we pray for each other. And so uh, I want to encourage anybody that might be going through a difficult, rough time to, to join us and to spend some time with us in prayer. Um, this is the third season of Advent, and, and you know, I'm reminded every, every year right around this time to, to make sure that we don't miss... Um, the meaning of Christmas, because we get focused on the result of Christmas. And here's what I mean by that. You know, focusing on generosity, kindness, being nice to each other, all of that, that's the, it's good. But those are the result of Christmas, it's not the meaning of it. Meaning of Christmas is what we talked about last Sunday, which is the meaning of Christmas is good, praise the Lord, Jesus Christ came the first time died and rose to usher in the kingdom and he's coming back to restore everything that's the meaning of christmas and it's out of that conviction that the result of christmas it's out of that conviction that that we could be generous it's out of that conviction that we could be kind it's out of that conviction that we can sacrificially love so let's not confuse the two okay if we focus on the meaning of uh, and the result of christmas christmas seems light it doesn't seem significant so I want to continue to remind us to focus on what really matters. So today, as we continue our journey, um, first significant snow. It's funny to me. You know, I talked to a couple of people who said, we might not be in church tomorrow because of the storm. I'm like, come on. You live in Chicago. It's not a storm until it's like, you know, three feet of snow. Can I get an amen? That's not storm. That's I, that's like child's play, right? Yeah, it's like sprinkles. So today as we continue our journey, um, I want to talk to you about waiting. I want to talk to you about waiting. I'm not good at waiting. It's ironic because I have a doctor's appointment this Thursday. It's my annual checkup. And I... I love my doctor. I love Dr. Golden, but I hate going to the doctor. I hate waiting in the waiting room. Anybody else? I hate it with the passion. I, confession time. So, uh, this is a little embarrassing. Confession time. So, uh, whenever McDonald's has McRib season, okay? Anybody else? Like, I have to have it. I have to have it. So I actually went to McDonald's back to back, two days in a row for McRib. Um, and the first time I went, this was this Wednesday, I actually got irritated because it took longer than 10 minutes. 
I actually found myself getting like irritated because it took longer than 10. And I sat there and Tom was with me, Tom Gorman. I sat there and just like, what's your problem? I, I hate waiting in the fast lane on the highway if people are going too slow. Anybody else, right? I hate it when I'm on the express lane and somebody clearly has more than 10 items and I'm like, do you not read signs? I hate waiting. And I could go on and on and on. My guess is some of you hate waiting. And let's just be frank. We live in a culture where we don't like waiting. Matter of fact, every time I preach a sermon, I feel like I have to add a qualifier. And a qualifier is something like this. If you're in your 20s, you might not really resonate today. Because if in your 20s and you go, I, don't, I know what it's like to wait. No, you don't. I'm sorry, I love you, but you don't. You don't know what it's like to wait. Talk to someone in their 50s and 60s. Is that a laugh as in like, yes, that's true? Yeah. We don't like to wait. Here's the problem in a good way. God is never in a hurry. Like, irritatingly so. <laughs> and he says he always has a plan and a purpose for everything. You know how we do the wait for it? To which we go, it seems like God sometimes goes, wait for it. And then like five years later. See, here's the teaching of Christmas and meditation that you and I, I think, will struggle with today. See, the powerful truth of Christmas that we need to sit with is this. It's that, on one hand, God says, the promise I gave to Abraham, which we talked about last week, that took thousands of years to fulfill, calls us to look back at the fact that God fulfills his promise, but in his time. Advent reminds us that we look forward to a promise yet fulfilled. When he's going to come back and restore all things. He's going to come back someday and wipe away sin and evil and injustice and oppression. The Bible promises he's going to come back someday and wipe away all tears. But the problem is it's been 2,000 years and we're still weeping. Christmas is about waiting. Advent is about waiting. Advent is about waiting with this truth. That God says on one end, I'm always faithful to my promises, but I'm never in a hurry. I'm never in a rush. And so if you and I impose our time calendars, our time frames on him, God says, you're not going to feel loved by me. But in the midst of that, can you trust him? Can I trust him? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're single and you've waited for marriage. Maybe you're a parent and I know folks like this in our church so this is very personal. You're a parent and you've waited for the joy of having your first child. Maybe, maybe you have a ruptured relationship with someone and you've waited for years for reconciliation to occur. There's some people in our church who've waited for years for a healing that hasn't come. 
Do you know what it's like to wait? Are you angry? Are you in despair? Are you feeling hopeless? Maybe you're even asking, God, do you see me? Do you care? I'm waiting. When I see the Bible, and I encourage you to do this sometime, there's so much teaching on waiting. Do you know that? There's so many verses on waiting. It's... Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Joseph, Daniel, Jesus, Paul. It seems as though that God uses waiting as a powerful instrument to do a significant work in us that he otherwise couldn't do. Challenge is that you and I are so accustomed to drive-by spirituality that we have little idea of waiting room spirituality. If you're accustomed to drive-by spirituality, this Advent season, God's going, what about waiting room spirituality? Hmm? There's a wonderful story in the book of Mark where we learn about the ways in which God works in this waiting room spirituality. Um, I'm greatly indebted to a book called The King's Cross, which was a a study to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5 is where we find this story. Um, So I want to have you turn your Bibles. If you do not have your Bibles, a verse up on the screen. Let's go through this story of what God might teach us. By the way, I just said, am I, am I the only one that struggles with waiting? <laughs> okay. I know I'm impatient, and, and, but boy, this is, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So right away, we meet Jairus. And the Bible says he is a ruler of a synagogue. That means he is like the lay president of a synagogue. So here's what we know about him. He's probably very moral. He's probably very respected in the community. He's probably also very wealthy, Jarius, but he also has, as we see, a desperate need because his little girl is as good as dead. That's the translation. She's as good as dead. It's not that she might die, but my girl is about to die. She's about to die. She's going to die unless you come right now. Verse 24. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Um, (laughs) I have three kids. 11, 9, and 6. So I could immediately put myself in this story. Can you imagine Jairus' excitement when Jesus says, Yeah, I'll go with you. But can you also imagine how his insides must be just churning? 
She's about to die. Hurry, hurry. She's about to die. Hurry, hurry. She's about. And the crowd, of course, is pressing and following him because they want to see another miracle. And then this happens. Verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. You know, I love noticing little details in Scripture. And it says here that she had, sim- she, had, she had not simply been suffering from her disease, but you know, she had been suffering also from the cures. And she's exhausted all of her finances, all the medical options. There's nothing that's worked. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. That word power in the Greek is the word dunamis, from which you get the English word dynamite, right? It's the first time it's used in the book of Mark. Jesus literally has a sensation of weakness go out of his body. A draining. He knows that there's been a healing. Jesus has lost his power so she could gain it. (laughs) I see the gospel everywhere. She's lost. Jesus lost his power so she could gain it. Jesus loses all his wealth so we could become rich. Jesus loses power so we could become strong. Jesus dies so we could what? He turned around, Jesus, in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Which is pretty hilarious. And I'll show you why in a second. The disciples, You see the crowd against you. His disciples answered, And you're asking, Who touched me? Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. The translation, again, kind of mused to sarcasm. And, you know, I, I resonate with sarcasm. So here's the gist of what's going on, okay? Jesus says, yes, I will heal your daughter. So they get into an ambulance. They're rushing. And Jesus says, stop the ambulance. Everybody get out. Why? Somebody touched me. And the disciples are going... You know what this is like? I went to a Cubs game. I went to a Cubs game this summer. And a friend and I were waiting like just to get in. Do you know, have you ever been in a massive crowd where you're literally like this, right? You're basically, that's what's going on. Jesus is being pressed on every. And so Jesus goes, who touched me? And the disciples are going, I don't know. Pick. <laughs> what do you mean who touched you? Everybody is touching you. No, no, no. But somebody, somebody touched me. Who touched me? Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him, say the following words with me. Ready? The whole, you know, when Jesus finds the person who was healed by tapping into his power, he stops her. And what does he do? He goes, why don't you tell me the whole story? <laughs> Jesus is literally having an extended conversation with her. Do you not find this odd? Anybody find this odd? Okay, so, that's, 
So here's, she's been bleeding for 12 years. That's sad. It is. But it's been 12 years. You could wait two more hours. Her? Little girl. She's dying. She's dying. She's going to die unless you come. 12 years, you could wait to go. She's going to die unless you come. It's not just irrational, it's malpractice. Any ER doctors in the room? If you're an ER doctor in the room, and a woman comes in and bleeding for 12 years, and a little girl comes in and she's about to die, and you treat the woman, and the little girl dies, what happens to you as a doctor? You get what? Sued. It's malpractice. The great physician is acting like an irresponsible doctor. There are times when the great physician might seem to you like he is being an irresponsible doctor. Who am I talking to this morning? There are times when the great physician comes and you're going to say, that hurts! To which he says, it has to, otherwise I can't remove the tumor. Do you know what you're doing? I do. Hurry, Jesus, hurry. She's going to die. I know. I know. 34. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I see the gospel on every page of the Bible. Is anybody else? And I love it because the Bible pulsates with the gospel, the gospel, gospel. Here are two people on the scene, Jarius and the woman. You could not have two more different people. Jarius is a man in a society culture in which man had all the power. She's a woman. Jarius is a synagogue ruler. She, unclean means she hasn't gone to worship in 12 years because your ceremony unclean. He, probably very wealthy. Her has absolutely nothing to her name, penniless. And yet, Jesus stops, spends all his time with her as if no one else is on the scene. And he says to Jarius, um, you can go wait outside, please. Why? Do you realize you see this on every page of the Bible, every page of the Gospels? You see these two pairs all the time. You have a Pharisee, and a tax collector. You have a religious leader and a fallen woman. You have a Jew and you have a Gentile. You have an outsider and an insider, racially, morally, ethically. Constantly the gospels present in people. And every time, it's Jesus' attention to the outsider that goes first. It's every time Jesus goes and, and, and meets and connects with the outsider first. Why? Why? It's always a social outcast. It's always the people at the bottom rung of the social ladder that Jesus seems to be drawn to. Why? And by the way, this is throughout history, not just in Scripture. Every major revival, when you look at church history, started among where? The poor, the uneducated, the marginalized. Why? Why? We know that God is no respecter of persons. Why is it 
that it's the uneducated versus educated. It's not about being rich versus poor. It's not being educated. Our church is full of educated, wealthy people. It's not about that per se. It's about this. It's about a posture in life that either says, I have what it takes to make it in life, or I don't have what it takes, and I need a savior. It's about a posture in life that says, I don't have what it takes to make it in life, and I need a savior, versus I do have what it takes. And here's the thing, and please listen, the wealthier you are, the more educated you are, the more powerful you are, the more you have what it takes to make it in this world, the more difficulty you'll have in believing that you can't come to God on your own. You can't get to heaven. So Christmas says, heaven had to come to you. We don't need help. We need to be rescued. Please hear me. We're not mistakers in need of correction. We're sinners in need of a savior. Can I get an amen? Amen. Do you hear that? We don't need a second chance. Church, we need a second birth. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, you need to understand that it's not about rich, poor, educated, uneducated. It's about a posture in life that either says, I have what it takes to make it in life, and I just need a little help. And a posture in life that says, I don't have what it takes, and I need a savior. And here's what that does, and why I love the gospel, and why the gospel is powerful to me. Because if that's true, then Christmas means end of self-righteousness. Christmas means end of despising people. Do you understand that? Because if you are truly saved by grace and grace alone, I identify with that. I can't make it in life on my own. I need a Savior. If you and I recognize that, then there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn salvation. That's why the Bible says, you have been saved by grace through faith and faith alone so that no one can what? Boast. That means an arrogant Christian. Those two things can't grow in the same dish. An arrogant Christian can't grow in the same dish. You can't be a Christian at no other time but Christmas. That reminds us, you can't be an arrogant Christian, a self-righteous Christian. So church, before I go on, who are you doing that with? Who are you despising? Who are you writing off? You might not be a racist, Do you despise and write off other racists? You might, are you self-righteous towards other self-righteous people? I need to say that to our church. What about this? What about this? Do you know what a stable smells like? Do you realize what that first family must have smelled like when they went into the city? What if they were standing next to you at the L? What if they were sitting next to you on the bus? How would you have regarded them? How would you have felt? Do you see Jesus in the neighbor that you despise? Do you see Jesus in the racist that you despise? Do you see Jesus in the political party? Do you see Jesus? How real is Christmas to you? How real is Christmas to me?
then Jairus' fears come true. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter. Your daughter's dead. He said, why bother the teacher anymore? Imagine how Jairus feels. Some of you know, my, my, my daughter Sophie um, was diagnosed with something called ITP. And I will never forget that night when Jenny had to call the ambulance and Sophie was rushed. Not knowing whether she was going to live or die and the terror that it filled me with. Preparing this sermon this week was really hard because I, 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 I could completely, literally feel what Jerry must have been feeling at this moment. And Jesus still says to him, it was says, verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. By the way, will you make a note of this? Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. He doesn't say, don't doubt. Just believe. He says, don't be a, what? Afraid. And I'll get to a little bit why. Just believe. Question, church. Because I think when Jesus says this, listen. When Jesus says to Jairus, I think he's looking over Jairus' head to you and me. December 2016. And he's talking to all of us. He's saying, don't be afraid. Trust me. Here's a question. Would you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Would you have trusted that he loves you? Would you have trusted that he has your, come on, let's be real honest. Would you have trusted that he has your best interest at heart? Say yes or no. Would you have trusted you? And you go, well, why is it important? Here it is. Let me just put it in a nutshell. You ready? And some folks are getting really emotional. I'm going to get emotional. If you don't trust Jesus, you're not going to follow him. I'm going to make it really simple this morning. You will not follow someone that you don't trust. Even my kids know that. You want a really simple explanation for where some of you are right now this morning and where I am. We're on very familiar emotional terrain. You want a really simple explanation for, I don't know why I'm, here it is. You ready? You will not follow someone that you do not trust. And in our church, when we talk about surrender, surrender, (laughs) how are you going to surrender your life to someone you don't trust? You want to know why your spiritual life has hit a ceiling. And like, I can't seem to break through. You're going, here it is. It's a very simple question with complex answers. But do you trust him? That he loves you. That he has your best interest at heart. That he knows what he is doing. You will not follow him if you do not trust. Even my kids know that. To you. December 11, 2016. Trust him.
I, I need more evidence. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But you know what I love about this story? Say what, Peter? Oh, I'll tell you what I love about this story. What I love about this story is, even though Jesus says, just believe, he doesn't just go, so check out, you know, check out your brain and, you know, thinking, you know, just, just he doesn't, he gives us actually plenty of reasons in this story on why we could trust him and why waiting doesn't have to turn us into bitter, angry, resentful, I'm going to walk away from you, but we could actually walk through it and walk out with poise and confidence and trust. And here's the thing. There are some things in this story that we know that the disciples don't. Sorry, disciples. There are some things that we know that Jesus sees in the story that the disciples don't. Let me just mention two of them. One, to Jesus, he has no more trouble raising a dead person than healing a sick person. You better say that. I will say it again. Jesus has no more trouble raising a dead person than he does healing a sick girl. No difference whatsoever. Disciples don't know that. Jairus doesn't know that. We do. Jesus does. By the way, can you imagine what the angels and Jesus thinking right now? Because you're in the disciples' shoes. You're Jairus. I'll get to that in a moment. Second thing we know is this. This woman has come to Jesus for healing. But here's the thing. She at best has a superstitious belief. She's just going, if I just touch him, I'll be healed. If I touch. And Jesus sees an opportunity to take this superstitious woman and turn her into a life-transformed disciple of Jesus for all eternity. And that opportunity might not come. He has to take advantage of that right now. But again, we see it. They don't. In other words, Jesus is saying, there are some massively crucial factors here that you just don't know about. That's not available. See, the thing about waiting that's so hard for me is I don't have all the details. Can I say that again? See, see, I, okay, I'll say it again. I won't say it again. Buki, the hardest thing for me to wait is that when I'm in the waiting room, I don't have all the details. Do you know what I'm saying? But I think I do. Mm, I think I do. So here's what I say. I go, this would not be happening. Meaning, I have all the details of what needs to happen. And maybe Jesus is saying to some of us, I'm going to speak my, maybe Jesus is saying to some of us, would it be easier to wait if you had, you know, some details that are not just available to you right now, child? But here's the thing, though, and I, I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? If I sat with some of you guys right now, and you were to tell me your story of why it's so hard to wait, some of the most difficult things that have happened, I would say to you, I would probably say to you, you know what? Where is God? You know what? They're not fair. You know what? I would probably do that. But at the same time, I would have to press you and me to this. Can you and I this morning just analyze the logic of this? Can you? Well... I can't see how anything good could come out of this. So therefore, there can't be any good that could come out of this. Listen, it's emotionally 
totally understandable. I'm there with you. I can't see why you're making me wait. So therefore, there can't be a good reason why you're making me wait. It's emotionally completely understandable and frankly, very satisfactory. But logically, it's nonsense. It's nonsense to go, I can't see any good reason for a delay. Therefore, there can't be a good reason for this delay. I can't see why you're not answering this prayer. Therefore, there can't be a good reason why you're not answering this prayer. Emotionally, it's completely understandable. But logically. Can I just mention two real quick things about waiting that I see here? Can I do that? One, waiting often reveals our true motives. I'm going to say it again. Here's what I mean. There's a world of difference between believing in him and believing in my agenda for him. There is a world, there is a cosmic gulf difference, church family, between I believe in him and I believe in my agenda for him. And often when I hear people go, I pray. He didn't answer my prayers. I'm waiting. He's not coming through. What we're actually saying is not I believe in him, but it's I believe in my agenda for him. Why isn't he answering? Church, you guys, can you not be totally honest this morning? Are you believing in him or are you believing in your agenda for him? Are you believing in him or are you believing what you want him to do that he hasn't? Do what you go, I don't know. How do you know the difference? I don't know. My heart's pure. I don't know. How do you know the difference between believe in him and believe in my agenda for him? Simple. It's how you're responding to the waiting. Because if you're waiting on him, this is hard. This stinks. But I'm going to wait. If you're waiting on an agenda for him that he's not coming through, you're probably furious right now. You're probably saying, I want to chuck the whole thing. You're probably saying, I thought you were a loving God. Second thing, waiting also requires a deliberate act of humility. See, when I look at the delays of God in my own life, you guys, I just admit the great deal of my consternation is because of my arrogance. I'm just going to speak for me. It's because. Of my, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Let me be absolutely clear. When I have a difficult time waiting on God, this is what I'm literally saying to God. Sometimes I actually vocalize it. Embarrassing. I literally go, I know you created the heavens and the earth and you hold all that by the power of your word. But why would you know any better than me how my life ought to go? I know, Jesus, you did the whole boom, created by the power of your word. But literally, I'm going, but how would you know better than me how my life ought to go? My life is not going the way I think and I know ought to go. So, do you realize that worry 
a great deal of our fear? Well, it's not that we're just failing God. We're fighting God for his job. Do you realize that a big deal, I, my, a big part of my anxiety and worry and fear is because I'm literally saying, I think I could do a better job than you. Why? I know how history ought to go. I know how my life ought to go. And you're not doing it. Worry is not just failing God. Worry is fighting God. Worry is not believing that God will get it right. Bitterness is when you go, you got it wrong. And I'll just say for me, a big part of my self-righteousness, a big part of my self-centeredness, Cece, the only way that that self-righteousness, that arrogance can get knocked out of my soul is in the time of delay. Because it's in that time of waiting that my motives, what they really are, are shown. And it's in the time of waiting where I lean into saying, God, you're God. I'm not. Here's the thing about this whole story. You ready before I finish? Jesus is not saying, I'm not going to be hurried, but I love you anyway. You know what Jesus is saying? Listen, I'm not going to be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. You see how the story ends? You see how it ends? Of course you do. Of course I do. Let's look how it ends. Verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. By the way, they hired professional mourners back then. The devil is a liar, is what CC said right now. Verse 39. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead. He's, she's sleeping. And you could see Jesus saying that with a smile. Verse 40. But they laughed at him. But after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in there where the child was. Verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Oh. Verse 42. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Of course they were astonished. Of course they were astonished. Do you know what they realized? Can you put up the sermon point? When you often go to Jesus. This is so powerful to me. When you often go to Jesus, you'll often get far more than you dare to ask or think. But Jesus is also going to ask of you far more than you dare to give. Sit with that for a second. When you go to Jesus, he is often going to get from you far more than you dare to ask, but he's also going to give you. What do you mean? Look at the story. Jairus thinks what? I just need to trust Jesus for what? For a healing. And Jesus goes, that's what you thought, but you're going to have to trust me not for a healing. Trust me for a what? A resurrection. And he got a what? Resurrection. The woman, she thinks she's just going to go to Jesus, get a touch for healing, and walk out. Jesus makes her go public. Why? I said, for her sake, for her sake. Why? 
because she thinks it's a superstitious belief that healed her. And Jesus goes, no, child, it's your faith in me that healed you. And she goes to Jesus thinking that she's simply going to get a physical healing. She gets that and she becomes a life-transformed disciple of Jesus for all eternity. When you go to Jesus, be prepared. Be prepared that you will get far more than you dare to ask or imagine. But also, Jesus is going to ask you to give him far more than you're planning to give. What does this look like in time of delays? I thought about you. And I thought about me. And here's what came up with. Here's what we give to Jesus. You ready? Do you realize that many times when disappointments come, delays when we're sad, angry, and despair. Does anybody else do this? We just stop doing things that we know we should be doing. Good morning, Amy. We stop going to worship. We stop doing life with people. We stop going to small groups. We stop praying. We stop reading scripture. We stop seeking God. We just stop doing it. We just, and, and here's the thing. It's, for me, it's self-pity. I feel bad, and I go, I'm not getting anything out of any of these things, so I'm just going to say, anybody else know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Am I the only But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you think that you don't get anything out of praying, you for sure, for sure are not going to get anything out of not praying. <laughs> I'm just let you sit there for a bit. If you think, in the way of time, praying, I guarantee you this, you're not going to get anything out of not praying. Can I get an amen? amen. If you think, well, you know, I, it doesn't even make any sense, and yet we do it. If you think it's a royal waste of time going to the throne of grace of God, you're not going to get anything out of never, ever going to the throne of grace of God. Did you know what oftentimes God asks for? He asks for faithful obedience when you don't feel like it. Because here's the other thing too. When we don't feel, here's the other thing. Not only do we stop doing what we should do, we start doing things we shouldn't do. We turn to meaningless sex. We spend money shopping. Find comfort in food. For some of us, you know what we do? Oh, I'm talking to like some of you. We just go, I've been wronged, so I'm going to do wrong. And I'm just going to throw away my character. I'm going to tell you something, child. Child of God. Throwing away your character because you're angry and resentful results in nothing. But at some point, coming back to God with scars. He loves you unconditionally. He's waiting for you with arms wide open. But that doesn't diminish the fact. You go, character, who can? Sometimes God says, giving faithful obedience in the midst of waiting. I know it's hard. Good God, it's so hard. But giving him faithful obedience. What do you get? Two truths. Here's what you get. Waiting results in transformation of character. You know what I've noticed as a pastor? Again, I need you to say, what did you notice, Peter? 
here's what I've noticed, okay? When people are going through difficult times, I've never yet heard somebody go, what an opportunity for me to be transformed into the man of God he wants me to be through this. What an opportunity for me to become the husband that my wife wants me to be. What an opportunity for me to become the follower of Jesus God. Nobody, I've never heard anybody say that. And yet here's the truth when you sit with, ready? We all know about Moses delivering the Jews out of Egypt bondage. Nobody talks about the fact that he had to wait 40 years for God to work on his character. But you know what the Bible says over and 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 over again? There's so many verses, we don't have time. Let me just pick out two. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of us would love to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything? Can I get an amen? What if God says, that doesn't come, though, without the 40 years of waiting? Here's another verse, Romans 5, 3. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When circumstances, bad circumstances, disappointments hit, you could become angry, bitter, resentful. Why are you making me wait? Or we could trust God, lean in, and become a man or woman of Voice of character, of hope, of maturity, of completeness. Pressure can turn a lump of coal into diamond. Pressure could either churn you and your prayer life into something far greater than what has ever been, or it could turn your prayer life into something far worse than it ever was. I have yet to meet, in 20-some years of being a pastor, a single Christian follower of Jesus whose prayer life is, is deep, who, who could hear literally. You know those people that could hear the voice of God? When you're with them, you just get this. I could tell you could hear the voice of God. I have yet to meet anyone who developed that kind of a prayer life apart from difficulty, challenge, and pressure. None. Waiting. Transforms. Second thing, waiting develops intimacy and dependence on God. Is this good news to anybody? God does more in my heart, in your heart, in my spiritual life, your spiritual life during these times when we're forced to wait, when sometimes confusion reigns, when we're desperate. God does more in my heart during those times than when things are going well. Because I'll tell you something, church. Everybody look up here. I'll tell you something, church. Look up here. Because it's during those times. It's during those times that what you and I go, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. It's during those times that what we say we believe in reality becomes what we believe. And that is this. We finally come to realize we don't really know That God is all that we need until God 
is all that we have. And you know what waiting does? You realize in the midst of it? You realize after a while, I wasn't waiting for the Lord's answer. I wasn't waiting for the Lord's reward. I wasn't waiting for the Lord to come through. I was simply waiting on what? On the Lord. I was simply waiting on Him. He's my reward. He's the answer. He's the reward. He's all that I need. Are you there yet? Am I there yet? I just hear a voice of Sophie in the background. It could be a 10-minute drive. Are we there yet, Daddy? How many more minutes? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are you in saying thing? Am I saying that? Are we there yet, God? Are we there yet? And I have a feeling for some of us, he's going... Not even close. How can you trust him? How do I trust him? Try harder. By the way, do you know why I do this? I don't, I don't want to be, it's not because I'm trying to be silly. I'm literally, I do this because I need you guys to be like smacked upside the head with this truth that the answer ultimately is found in who? It's in Jesus and the gospel. Amen? How do you learn to wait? You don't do it by going, I'm just going to buckle myself and I'm just going to, you don't do it by that. You don't just go, I'm just going to just, you know, I'm just going to try. You don't do that. You don't do that. God doesn't work like that. God says you learn to wait by looking to the ultimate parent. So the thing that I love about this story is this. Talitha Kaum. Little girl, get up. Talitha says little girl. But in reality, literally, it's a term of endearment. It's a pet name. Literally, what Jesus is saying is in that culture, it would have been like, honey or sugar. Or as they say to my kids, boo-boo or Noah bear or baby girl. That's the term. When, when he says, Talitha, it's little girl. And get up doesn't mean be resurrected. Get up literally in the language was what a parent would have said walking into a sunny room on a, on a morning sitting by her baby girl's bed and saying, hey, it's time to wake up. Get up. I need you to use your imagination. Jesus is sitting next to this girl and he's saying, honey, it's time to get up. (laughs) I'm emotional. Do you see the power in that? Do you see the power? There's no hocus pocus. There are no, I'm going. <laughs> uh, everybody watch. Here's none of that. Old Testament Elijah. Old Testament Elijah, when the widow's son is dead, it's funny. He, he literally prostrates himself on top of the sun and blows it. There is none of that. Jesus simply said, honey, Jesus is facing a foe greater than a hurricane. He's facing a greater, greater than legions of demons. He's facing the greatest death the human race has ever known, which is what? Death. And such is power, Jesus says. Time to get up. You know what he's saying? If you lost a loved one this year, this Christmas, he's saying, with me in your life, even death is like a good night's sleep. It's time to get up. And he does. And look at his love. 
That's his power. Look at the love and the tenderness. 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 I know what it's like to lose my parents' hand. I was in an amusement park when I was four years old in Korea, and it was traumatic. My parents lost me. They're terrible parents. I'm in the crowd. I'm going, Mom, Dad, or in Korea, Appa, Amma, where, where are you? But you and both know, even the best parents lose their child. Even the best parents know what it's like to mess up. But here is the ultimate perfect parent who says, I hold you by the hand. The hands that scatter the stars in the sky. I hold you by the hand and I'm going to take you through the darkest of night. Do you know what the best news of Christmas is? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. You have a perfect parent who has you by the hand in the waiting room saying, you'll be okay. Now my question is this. Why would you want to rush someone like this? Why would you want to hurry someone like this? Why would you, why, why would you not trust someone like this? So anybody sitting here this morning who says, I've been waiting weeks, months, years, where is he? This is hard, it's painful, where is he? The great physician, C.C. says, here's who I am. I've got you by the hand. And he goes, well, how could he do that? Because, everybody, look up here. Because on the cross, Jesus lost his father's hand. You think it's traumatic for a child to lose the hand of their father? What's happening on the cross? What's happening on the cross is Jesus is losing the hand of his heavenly father. There is no, honey, get up for Jesus. Death comes on Jesus with all its fury. Why did he do that? For who? For who? There is for me. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our punishment. And he loses his father's hand so that, Amber, you will never ever have to doubt. Are you with me? Are you holding me?